This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Erwin Entz, Barbara Jones, and Melissa Littlepage as they discuss cultivating beautiful community. Erwin Entz is Executive Director at Grace DC Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. Barbara Jones is founder and president of Walking Anew, and Melissa Littlepage is the chief of staff for the Grace DC Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. This panel discussion was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as they discuss cultivating beautiful community. Good morning, everybody. Bright and early. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, as Josh said, I'm Erwin Inns. I serve as the director of our Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. And we've just got an hour, but we want to uh, accomplish a good bit in that hour. Just to let you know, you've got to pack it because when we do seminars at the Institute, um, we don't just do kind of one-way lecture, uh, but it has to be interactive. So you'll have some opportunity uh, to engage on the content with each other. And so let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, We've got three things that we want to accomplish with you this morning. We want to, uh, hopefully, by the end, you'll be able to articulate a biblical rationale for why uh, this is important, uh, the cultivating of what we call beautiful community. Secondly, to define culture and intercultural competence uh, in your own words and give examples um, of iterations of culture. And then thirdly, uh, to identify some practical ideas uh, for your own context through uh, self-reflection, all right? So I've got the first part, Melissa essentially the second part, Uh, Sister Barbara the third, and then we'll have our interaction and have some time for questions and responses uh, at the end. So let me start with the biblical rationale, and it's simply two things uh, to engage here, right? What what is beautiful community? (laughs) What do I mean when I say that? Um, It starts with the reality of who God is, the nature of God. God is 
beautiful community. What I mean by that, right, our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in mutually loving, glorifying, supporting, honoring community. And that has every implication for the first thing we hear about humanity in the Bible from the mouth of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That we are created for beautiful community as the image. Uh, one of my favorite, well, one of, probably my favorite theologian, uh, Herman Bovink, you know, the, depends on what seminary you go to, who becomes your favorite, right? I love what he says. He, he said, in God, too, there is unity and diversity, diversity and unity. He said, indeed, this, this order uh, um, exists in him, and this perfection exists in him absolutely, right? He says, among creatures, we only see a faint analogy of it, he says. He says, among us, unity exists only by attraction, by the will and the disposition of the will. It's a moral unity that's fragile and unstable. But in God, there is absolute unity, absolute diversity. And he says this, he says, and this results in the most perfect kind of community, a community of the same beings. At the same time, it results in the most perfect diversity, a diversity of divine persons. He says, the Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being, the true life, eternal beauty. And this has every implication for who we are created to be. What is the nature of humanity? Right? I love what um, Professor Elaine Scarry has got a little book she titled called On Beauty and Being Just. And she's making her case in this book that the more we care uh, about, uh, about beauty, the more we'll care about justice. And, uh, and she says this, she's talking about beauty in the created world, right? But I think about the creation of humanity in this way. She says this, she says, beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. And she says, it is impossible to conceive of a beautiful thing that does not have the attribute of begetting. Right? That, that what we see in the creation of humanity Right? If God's beauty is seen most profoundly in his Trinitarian life as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we should expect that beauty to be reflected in the humanity that images him. And so while we each have individual dignity and value as image bearers, the most profound way we reflect the image of God is in community. Let me quote from Herman Bovink again. Um, this is him on the image of God. He says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being. However richly gifted that human being may be, it can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. It says, just like the traces of God 
are spread over many, many works in both space and time, so also the image of God can only be displayed in all its dimensions and characteristic features in a humanity whose members exist successively one after the other and contemporaneously side by side. And he says this, only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head spread out over the whole earth as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation. He says only it is a fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. He says you want to have the, in your mind's eye the full picture of what it means for humanity to be the image of God, you have to have the end of the story in mind. You have to have revelation in mind. You have to have every tribe and tongue and people and nation under the lordship of Jesus Christ saying, worthy is the lamb. And the point in that is that's not plan B. <laughs> That's where we were going from the beginning. And so, all right, I don't have that in the notes. I better, I better keep moving. <laughs> all right. <laughs> here's, here, here's, the, here's the challenge and the issues that we, uh, that we face, however, right? What's the things that hinder us from the reality of this beautiful community, unity and diversity under the lordship of Jesus. Um, I, you know, uh, last year, I think it was last year, Isabel Wickerson's second book titled um, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. I started using that subtitle, thinking about humanity. What are the origins of our discontents? our divisions and our polarizations, not just one-on-one, -on -one, individual to individual, but as group against group. People group against people group. Polarizations, hostilities, my people, your people, us and them, right? And in the biblical record, it has its roots in Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. This picture here, uh, on the screen is a picture of a ziggurat mountain. It's from about 2100 uh, BC um, in what would become um, Babylonia. And you can see, if you can see it, I, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit dim, but this, is, this gives you a picture. It would have been a dome on the top, and there's staircases on the front and on the sides. And this, this gives you a sense of what the Tower of Babel would have looked like in Genesis 11, right? This is the last time, Genesis 11:1 is the last time humanity was completely united. Genesis 11:1, right? The whole earth had the same language and spoke the same words, right? Flood in Genesis 6 through 9, recreation event, and after the flood, Genesis 9-1, to, to Noah and his family, the Lord reissues the command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And what we find after that 
in Genesis 10, the table of nations, the descendants of Noah, and where they are over the face of the earth, starting a new section. And Genesis 11 starts to give us the story of how that dispersion happened. Whole earth, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 11, the whole earth had the same language, spoke the same words. It says they migrated east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And here's what we said to each other. Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its height extending to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed from here over the face of the whole earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no, no, no. We want to transgress your throne, God. Lord comes down in judgment and in mercy, and he confuses our language. Right? He says, look, he said, Lord says, this is only the beginning of what they will begin to do. He says, Lord is saying, if I let humanity continue unhindered, completely united in their utter rebellion against me, there is no bottom to the depth with which they will sink. Using all of their creative technological genius to build a tower to transgress my throne. And so he confuses our language and he says they stopped building the city and the tower. And then it says two times, Genesis 11, 8 and 9, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. And these are, this is the origins of our discontents. Now, when we see difference, group, so, so as a consequence of Babel, you are going to have group against group, people against people, the ghettoization of humanity. I now get my sense of dignity, value, and worth from my ghetto, my tribe, who are my people. And when we see difference, we don't naturally say, oh, let, let's appreciate what, can I see the facets of what it means to be the image of God in this difference culture? <laughs> you say, no, 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 y'all don't know what it's like to be human. If you want to be human, maybe become like us if we let you. So, so, from Babel, you have, as a consequence, oppression, injustice, enslavement, right? What's the context of Genesis 11, right? Who were the recipients of, uh, of Genesis? The people of Israel, right? What was the context that they, when they received it? They had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. Why were they slaves in Egypt? Because they weren't Egyptian. It's what Pharaoh says in Exodus 1. We got a problem with these Hebrews. They are not like us. We have to deal shrewdly with them. The origins of our discontents. And so, here's my last slide. God will not be thwarted. God will not be thwarted. Right? What, what is the follow to Genesis 11? It's Genesis 12. And what happens in Genesis 12, the Lord calls Abram 
out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? And he says, get up and leave. Leave your, your kindred, your father's house. Go to a land that I'm going to show you, right? He says, I'm going to make your name great. The Babylonians said, let's make a name for ourselves. The Lord says to Abram, I'm going to make your name great, right? You will be a blessing, right? He says, in you, this is the promise, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a promise of the reunion and reconciliation of humanity in the seed of Abram. God immediately follows the judgment with the promise. All we could do in our sinful condition is, is rebel against God, be united in our rebellion. <laughs> so God did the dispersion, and God says, I'm going to do the reconciliation. And so when Jesus comes and he says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, right, at the end of that, toward the end of that chapter, he's praying to the Father, right, and he says, I don't ask for these only, right? He, he prayed for his disciples, the, the 12 who followed him in his earthly ministry. He said, I don't pray for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. All who will believe in me through the apostolic word. That's us. What's his prayer for? That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may become perfectly one. I'm misquoting because it's right? the glory you've given me, I've given them, right? Over and over again. So that, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me, and then so that the world may know, uh, believe that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. And do you know what the Lord Jesus has on his mind? He's not pulling this idea of oneness out of thin air. He has the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 on his mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And his prayer is, Father, the unity that I had with, have with you since eternity past, make it such that my people image that. And so, right, what prayer of the Lord Jesus is the Father going to say, no, nah, I'm, I'm not interested in that. So here's the deal. What the fall destroyed was our unity and our union with God and with each other. But the reality is reunion is the story of Scripture. Those words that we find in in the Bible, reconciliation, renewal, unity, united, right? These are the reversals of the fractures and the partitions, the polarizations and the divides uh, that are still needed right, between God and with one another. And so we, humanity, we are truly stamped from the beginning. <laughs> for unity and union, for wholeness and shalom across every line of difference. And so, 
Here it is, I went longer than the plan because I do that all the time. I told Melissa, I said, I only got three slides. She said, okay, Reverend. All right, <laughs> Melissa's gonna take it over on beauty's expense. Did y'all see, he slipped two slides into one, okay? The nature of God and the nature of humanity, that's usually on two slides. Uh, so we are indeed stamped from the beginning for beautiful community and destined for beautiful community. It's very much where we are headed, where we are going. And so I want to spend some more time now looking more deeply at beauty's expanse. What is this beauty that we are headed for? What is the expansiveness of it? And I want to humbly offer to you that beauty's expanse is culture. Beauty's expanse amongst us as God's people is our cultural differences across space and time. I want to return to the Bavink quote uh, so nice, we're reading it twice, that Reverend already shared with you uh, about the image of God. The image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human be being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members just as the traces of God are spread over many, many works in both space and time, so also the image of God can only be displayed in all its dimensions and characteristic features in a humanity whose members exist both successively one after the other and contemporaneously side by side. Only humanity in its entirety, only it is the fully finished image the most telling and striking likeness of God. And what I want to center on briefly this morning is what Bavink is getting at when he says depth and riches, this depth and riches of a humanity counting billions of members is culture, our cultural differences across space and time and contemporaneously side by side, as Bavink says, is the image of God. And I want to dig more deeply into these depths and riches as we explore culture together. I also want to posit to you that culture is very much God's idea. So in Genesis, we have this creational mandate, right, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. We see in the second uh, creation narrative that God says to the man, to cultivate, right? He puts him in the garden and he says to work it. This Hebrew word used there, abad, can be translated in a, can be translated in a number of ways to mean things like steward or serve or cultivate. But especially when I think of the word cultivate and what might get used there, I think of agriculture or horticulture. We're being told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in a sense of making things. Anytime we make something, we are doing culture. When we make a friendship, right? When we make art or music or food. When we make a dance, right? When we make words and language. This is the expansiveness, the riches and depths of a humanity counting billions of members and our cultural differences. So culture is God's job description for humanity. And that job description does not change post-fall. So this word that gets used in Genesis chapter 2 to cultivate, to steward, to serve, abad, appears post-fall as well. It appears in Genesis chapter 3. And what I want to assert to you is that our job description does not change. 
our job description to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to cultivate, to make things, to make culture, does not change. But what changes is it becomes much more difficult, right? We now have thorns and thistles. We now have enmity, right? We have dissonance with each other. But it is still our job description to make culture, and it is what has continued to happen because we are made in God's image. It's what we do as people. We're going to spend a little bit of time exploring um, our own cultural experiences, um, our own understanding of culture, using these analogies that you see on the screen. And so I would love for you to please, uh, when I let you know it's time, find um, three or four new friends who have the same color strip of paper as you, and you're going to discuss one of these images. If you have a red piece of paper in your small group, you're going to discuss how the image of the onion is an analogy for culture. If you have a black piece of paper in your small group, you're going to discuss how the fishbowl is an analogy for culture. If you have a green piece of paper, have I said green yet? I don't think so. I did say green? Okay. Um, green, then you're going to do the eyeglasses. And then uh, yellow, you will discuss how the iceberg is an analogy for culture. So as you're crying through the onion, um, something that is mentioned that we just thought about was that as you dive into culture, there's depth and depth of layers. And as community, we're called to do that. But then in order, in order to repeat that culture and share that culture, you have to get to that root of an onion in order for that onion to sprout, to be in the correct environment, and to then flourish and reproduce. So in order to do that, you have to care for that onion. You have to put it in the correct environment. And we can't do that until we're the correct community to allow culture to flourish. Thank you, thank you. Okay, um, someone from the fishbowl group. Anybody wanna share what their group reflected on? Uh, something we kind of thought about is that oftentimes, uh, assuming that we're like the fish, you don't recognize the culture that you're actually swimming in the whole time, it's just, just life. What's, what's the difference? Or even the bowl itself can kind of be like a bubble, a barrier that you're in that you don't totally recognize until, as one member here shared, you get tossed out of it. And all of a sudden, everything is like, wait, what's going on? I'm completely lost now. Looking at the picture of the fish, we observe that we're not meant to be alone and that the more alone we are, the smaller our world is. Uh, the more limited our experiences are. But if we get out into a bigger fish tank with other types of fish, we have a bigger experience. And some fish, like goldfish, grow to the size of the bowl that they're in. So you actually grow more if you're in a bigger environment. Metaphors are my love language. This is awesome. <laughs> okay, um, anybody from the eyeglasses group? Well, we had um, several things we mentioned. Um, I'm trying to think which one I should share. There's a lot of good stuff. Well, I guess uh, one, one big and maybe more obvious one is that culture is the lens through which you see the world, and it's the lens through which you see your own culture and other people's cultures. And sometimes you have to take your glasses off or get your glasses broken in order to realize that you actually have a culture. Well, the first thing that was said was we see things differently when we put on our glasses.
Um, without these things on my face, uh, I cannot see clearly. And uh, I need my glasses to be able to understand what I'm looking at, what I'm seeing. So there were a couple of comments about um, the, using glasses for different purposes, um, farsightedness, nearsightedness. And one of my brothers said he needs to have uh, checkups and adjustments on his glasses to be able to understand and see things clearly at times. So I don't know if I did that. Perfect, thank you. I'm noticing the time, so maybe one iceberg group. What we noticed was that 90% or more of what you see is under the water. And so if you want, if you're engaging another culture, there's so much more than what you see with the natural eye. And we reason from that, that in order to get to know that other culture, you must be in relationship with that culture. You must engage it. Thank you, thank you so much. These are amazing reflections. All of them are very good. Um, I should have included an image of this slide as well um, for you all on your handout because it's very difficult to see. But we wanna continue building on this iceberg analogy and you're exactly right, right? The majority of it is beneath the surface of the water and this is also true of our culture and our experiences of bridging across cultural differences and commonalities. The surface of the iceberg is what we might call observable or objective or material culture, right? Things like art, music, food, dress, language. And when we are bridging on this level of culture, this objective material level of culture, there is a relatively low emotional load in bridging on this level. But the majority of our cultural differences and the majority of our difficulty in bridging effectively across them is beneath the surface of the water in this category that we might call subjective or non-material culture. And we have two categories here, one of unspoken rules and one of unconscious rules. And as we go deeper in the iceberg, we are increasing the emotional load of effectively bridging across cultural difference and commonality. In this yellow category of unspoken rules of culture, ways that we are culturally formed, we have things like courtesy, concepts of time, contextual conversational patterns, our notions of modesty and our notions of leadership, our body language and eye contact, right? We might be able to verbalize these cultural rules that we have, but they largely go unspoken. And when we are experiencing significant difference between us and someone else on this level of culture, the emotional load can be increased. One easy example, when I go to the grocery store here in the United States, we queue up pretty easily by default, right? We know how to like get into line and queue up. Um, that's kind of a cultural expectation, and if someone were to come into the store um, who just like got in front of me or bumped into me, uh, I would probably like internally be like, that's rude, right? I would not like that. Um, might ha be a little emotionally stirred by that, but that's kind of a cultural expectation. There are cultures around this world that do not queue up by default. They do not just get into line one after the other and stay out of each other's personal space, right? Um, and so that is not because my culture is right and theirs is wrong. It's because we have these unspoken cultural differences and our ability to bridge across them can be difficult. As we get into unconscious rules of subjective or non-material culture, 
the emotional load can become intense. And things that fit into this category are things like tempo of work, ideals of child rearing, right? I think about this especially in the church. If we have deeply culturally formed different notions of the ideals of child rearing, there can be an intense emotional load in bridging across that. Um, we also get into things like competition versus cooperation and our definitions of obscenities and our definitions of insanity, right? It can be pretty intense to bridge across these cultural differences. I have talked too long. <laughs> Let me give this microphone to Barbara Jones. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's what we do and what we love. It's our method of evangelizing and engaging across differences ourselves. We love talking to people. And it's always a pleasure when we get to talk to people who are different from us and people who we have commonalities with. So we've looked at culture. We've looked at the biblical context. Um, I want to do a little bit of discussion around practicality. What does all this mean? Um, before we do that, if you were born in the U.S., and I realize that we can't all hear you from in the back of the room, but around you, I still would like for you to participate so that others can hear. But if you were born in the U.S., call out the state you were born in. Represent Jersey. If you were born outside of the U.S., what country were you born in? Great. What about academic? How many of you were homeschooled? Public school? Private or Christian school? Okay, you have a degree? Okay. How many of you cannot remember a time when you were not a Christian? You were born into a Christian family. How many of you, like me, did not become a Christian until later in life? Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're getting in my business. <laughs> I was 27. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, but yeah, I was 27. How many of you are single? We celebrate you. And married. We pray for you. <laughs> So I am born uh, and raised in the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago. I have always lived in sort of an inner city. You know, you guys might refer to it as urban community. Um, I never lived in a house. I always lived in apartment buildings. We never owned a car because in Chicago, transportation was readily available and there was no need. And as I shared earlier, I did not grow up as a Christian. But then I married a man born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, um, Midwesterner, Southerner. Um, this man that I married and whom I love grew up in the church. He always lived in a home, a house in particular, and they always had a value for fine cars to this day. My husband drives a Tesla. I don't understand it, but you know. <laughs> What I learned is that in our commonalities, we both love Jesus. We were both black. And we loved each other. So doesn't that make for a happy, wonderful marriage with no conflict? It wasn't our commonalities that tripped us up. It was our differences. 
We all have values, beliefs, and perspectives that shape us. And just looking at this audience, I realize that you all come from different places. You were raised probably by different people in your family structures, some their grandmother, some their mother and father, others aunt. Some of you may have even been adopted, right? You were schooled in a place, and you have been churched in a place, and all of that has shaped you, right? For me, that makes this idea and this discussion around culture a level playing field. So what I would say and ask to you is to think about what has impacted your culture. Because your culture impacts how you engage the other and differences. So I do this work all the time. We all do. We're all qualified administrators of a tool called the Intercultural Development Inventory, amongst many other tools and resources. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the IDI, Intercultural Development Inventory. But what I want to ask you is to think about the question, what is your culture? I love what the brother in this group said about being a fish in water. I have experienced, not with everyone, but with many of my white brothers and sisters, when I ask the question, what is your culture? Many of you reside in the fishbowl. I'm saying, come on out. Struggle to breathe. Come into this place where we've all been kind of struggling to breathe. You know, welcome in. Being in this room, I applaud you. And then I also say for my brothers and sisters of color, some of us, too, have allowed ourselves to live in that fishbowl, and we struggle. And so there's a beauty in us all being in this room, recognizing that we have a level playing field. You have culture, you have culture, you have culture, I have culture. We're all cultural beings. Dr. Entz shared that with you, right? But the elephant in the room is this idea that when we come into a space where we discuss biblical unity, it more often times points us toward division than it does unifying us. And I really struggle with that family. Can I call us family? I think that we prefer to be distracted. I think it's easier. I think we don't want to look in the mirror because it's hard work. What would it look like if all of us lived our days saying, what, is it, what does it look like for me to love my neighbor who's different, instead of using all of the verbiage that's out there to distract us? And I won't even name them, because I think they're sometimes from the enemy. <laughs> but you know what they are. Some of you talk about them all the time. I think we're doing some reports on them. Division. Unity. What does loving my neighbor who is different from me look like? That's the bottom line. Um, I think of this question in my marriage all the time. <laughs> what does loving my husband who thinks differently about finances, about purchasing cars, about managing our house, our children? And then I press in to the discomfort, and I love him. So again, recognize that we all have culture, 
It's a level playing field. We could very easily get into the black, white, Asian, Latin, native, and all the other stuff that divides us. But we are a family and we all have culture. So let's talk about the common denominator. Um, this slide here is, is saying it's sometimes hard for us to take a look in the mirror and to see ourselves, to recognize that we have a culture. I'm inviting you to recognize that you have a culture, and I would like to ask you some questions. Do you gravitate towards people who think, dress, act, worship like you, or are you open to engaging across cultural differences? Do you accept the reality that you can learn a lot from people who are different from you? I learned so much in my marriage about humility and repentance and forgiveness and the need for forgiveness. As I said earlier, the three of us are qualified administrators of the Intercultural Development Inventory. And you, you feeling me? Okay, wonderful. Um, this again is not the only tool that we use, but it is a tool. And to me personally, it is like holding up a mirror and taking a look to see what we look like in terms of how we engage with the other, both in our commonalities and in our differences. The IDI, because all of you can't see it, but it asserts that individuals who engage life via a monocultural mindset, that's seeing culture, sorry, from their own point of view, their own experience, it's a very limited mindset. It's similar to the picture you saw of the iceberg. You're engaging people based on what you've experienced, what you've been taught, what you see, but there is this need to go deeper. And so the monocultural mindset says that an individual in that space makes sense of cultural differences and commonalities based on one's own cultural values and practices. But someone with an intercultural mindset makes sense of cultural differences and commonalities based on one's own and others' cultures, values, and practices. What's the common denominator in this? You can call it out. One's own. One Why do you think that is significant, if you think about it? You live in your culture. And I didn't pay you to do that. <laughs> you, you have to know your own culture. Can you say that again? You have to know your own culture um, because it helps you to engage others more effectively. I'm just going to help you out just a tiny <laughs> bit. <laughs> because we want you to get engaged. <laughs> we want you to engage no matter what. But knowing who you are, knowing that you are a fish in water, knowing that there's history attached, like my husband, there were bullet points about his life that impacted and is impacting our marriage, and bullet points about my life. There are bullet points about your life that's impacting how you engage others. But most of the time, you're not challenged. We're not challenged to recognize those bullet points. Recognizing our culture helps us to step back. And it may call us to repent, even acknowledge that we need to repent. It may allow us to position ourselves 
in dynamics where we're trying to deal with race relations and biblical unity to say, Lord, would you open my eyes so that I can see? Would you give me ears to hear? Would you work with my stony heart across differences? I always say to clients that we're going to get to Revelation 7-9. How will God use you to be a part of getting us there? You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.